here today. We are wrapping up our sermon series where we have been going through line by line of the Lord's Prayer. We called it Teach Us to Pray. Jesus' response to the question that the disciples asked him, how should we pray? Like, how do you pray? You're good at this. Teach us how to do it. His response to them was the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up around church, the Lord's Prayer may have been familiar to you. It was something that we said every Sunday in my church. I can still hear the cadence and the baritone of the pastor growing up. Maybe it was totally new to you. Regardless, this prayer is really helpful. There are so many touch points within the prayer that matter, that that show up in ordinary life and that show up in the lives of people who are willing to kind of have an eye to see where God is at work in and around us. And so today's our final sermon in this series, and we are going to talk about the uh, extraordinary subject of evil, deliver us from evil. When we think about the word evil, what comes to mind? Now, I'm going to offer a couple of slides of the great stereotypical movie villains, okay? And so if you can resonate with me in this regard, I want you to think not just of this person's name or the movie that they come from, but what's their nefarious plan? Like, what are they doing to try to take over the world? Or remember Pinky and the Brain from Animaniacs? Any children of the 90s here? Okay. Pinky and the Brain would have been a good one to put in here. Now, who's the bad guy and what's his nefarious plan? Anybody? What's his nefarious plan? Rule the galaxy, his father and son, right? Corrupt Luke, bring him to the dark side. Not so good. How about this guy? What's his nefarious plan? Wipe out half the universe to restore balance, right? Kind of a creative little outcome there. How about this person? What's her nefarious plan? She want, like, the things she's wearing and those dogs that she's admiring, like, she's, she's a quite, you know, remarkably evil person. Look at that look on her face. Look at those cheekbones. My goodness. How about this guy? Okay, I'm proud of y'all for knowing this one. This is a deeper cut. We're going back 20 years now. So we watched a bit of The Lord of the Rings with my kids the other day, and it was just remarkable to kind of step back into that world Two quick caveats. I only watched the extended edition Lord of the Rings films. Uh, My kids aren't quite ready for those yet. And no, I have not seen the Hobbit films because I heard they weren't very good. Saruman, what is his one goal? He wants to take over and rule. There's this other guy, Sauron, who has other plans for him. But he is in a really, really dark situation. Here's uh, another one of my favorites. This is a bit of a deeper cut. Who's this guy? This is Sir Derek Jacobi, the actor, but do you know what role he's in? This is my favorite version of the Shakespeare play Hamlet from 1996, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Derek Jacobi, one of the greatest actors of his generation, played Claudius. Remember King Claudius? What does King Claudius do in Hamlet? He kills the king, tries to take over the throne. Hamlet takes him down. And my favorite performance by far of anyone depicting King Claudius. Last one, very important. Who knows who this guy is? There's a lot of looks of confusion. Okay, those of you who have children in kind of older elementary, you know who this is. This is Principal Krupp from the uh, epic uh, Shakespearean tragedy known as Captain Underpants. If you've not seen Captain Underpants, it is really funny. Uh, And he's a bad guy. He's the principal at a school. He is also the superhero in the show, which is part of the show's brilliance. I don't know how they did this, but the writers of this show 
perfectly capture this balance of humor that my kids enjoy and just gut-busting humor that I really enjoy. Like, I don't know how they crawled into my head and found the things that I find funny, but it is a hysterical show, so check it out sometime. Now, this sort of montage of bad guys is meant to get us thinking about how does our culture talk about this concept of evil? Well, in a lot of ways, it makes it cartoonish, makes it silly, or in some cases, like, so draconian, so awful that we can't even imagine it being real. Like, who could possibly do something like what Thanos did? Wipe out half of existence. Come on. That's how our world thinks about evil, is if it is real, it needs to be so put away from us that we cannot simply fathom that it would exist in the world. We cannot come to grips with the idea of evil because we're good people. Why would we ever act like Darth Vader or Thanos or anything like that? It's a way for us to distance ourselves from the concept of evil. The problem with this is reality. In reality, every one of us not only knows and experiences situations that we would be able to say, that's just evil, that's just wrong. But if we're honest, there's a bit of that kicking around in us. There's a bit of this problem of evil that is deeply personal. We can't depersonalize it and put it all on Darth Vader. We know ourselves too well, and as we grow and as we become mature, we start to recognize there's a lot more evil in me than I originally realized. There's a lot more that is messy and broken and systematically wrong in my heart. And this is the entry point for the gospel, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But at the top, I want to say this. The Bible gives us clear eyes into evil. There is no rose-colored glasses in the Bible about what evil is. Jesus takes evil seriously. He takes it so seriously, he puts it into this prayer that he then instructs his disciples to pray. So we have a high calling not to look past evil or to sort of belittle it, but to actually wrestle with it and take it seriously. And Jesus' approach to it is to begin with prayer, to start any pursuit of the dismantling of evil, the taking down of injustice. It has to, must be, run through the lens of prayer. And so we're going to look at uh, what that might look like today. If you're a note taker, here's your outline. We're going to talk about what is evil. We'll talk about the triumphal entry. That's the name of the passage that we'll be reading in a moment, the Palm Sunday passage. And then we will talk about prayer. So let's begin by talking about what is evil. We saw those examples from pop culture, so we've seen kind of a cartoonish, popularized version of evil. In today's text, deliver us from evil, the New Testament word that is used is poneros. Kind of sounds like pondering, like ponderous, like hard to deal with, right? It is evil in effect or influence, hurtful, grievous, wicked. May such things never be said of you or me. But this is how the word evil comes up in the text today. It originates, we know, in Genesis chapter 3, so we go all the way back to the very beginning in the garden. It is a personal being, meaning there is a personification of evil that the Bible takes seriously, which in the case of Genesis chapter 3 is the serpent. Remember he's introduced, the serpent was craftier than all the other animals, and he comes up to Eve and he introduces this question, did God really say don't do this. He sows these seeds of doubt. He directly influences the deliberation of uh, the first people. Movie villains just have their one thing that they're trying to get after. Not so with this serpent. 
He's not just after, did God really say? No, he's trying to pull apart an entire ecosystem, an entire series of relationships between God and people. A very important tool that we just need to be able to recognize that evil constantly tries to use, evil tries to convince us that it isn't real, and it tries to convince us that somehow we are above it. This is why in our culture, people are reticent to use the word evil, because it might be construed as judgmental. Because if you were to say, oh man, that thing that happened over there, that is evil, by some accounts, you are implying that you are on a different pedestal than that. That's not actually the case when we talk about evil being what the Bible defines it as. If it is evil in effect and influence, if it is culpability, if it is grievous and harmful, we need to call a dog a dog. We do not need to nuance our language around things that are evil. We need to think about who's listening and read the room, but one of the great strengths, one of the great benefits of the biblical faith is you know evil when you see it. And it's actually freeing to name something as evil. Case in point, last spring, I was at a baseball practice. I was talking with some of the parents on my team, and I love managing this baseball team. This is, I'm doing it again this year. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. It's really fun because it's this experience of time-bound community where people are spending a ton of time with each other, and we have to get along together, and we're strangers before this, and then afterwards we might not see one another, and I'm entering into this as a pastor, and I want to care for these people and see them do well, but I don't hang my flag out there that I'm a pastor. I just want to show up and serve them the presence of Jesus. You can tell. It's, it's wonderful. It's something I enjoy. But one of the things that happened last spring, which we all remember, is this. Do you remember this? Where is this? Uvalde, Texas. Small town on the road between Austin and the summer camp that I grew up going to. I've driven by Uvalde my entire life. And in Uvalde, Texas, there was an awful event. And because there's some kids in the room, we'll just say it was a very difficult place and a very difficult time. And so I'm talking with some of these parents the day that this event happened. We're standing around at baseball practice, thousands of miles away from where this happened. But every one of us feels it. A bunch of you in the room are parents. You know what I'm talking about. That day when you saw that news flash, when you saw that alert, when you were in the cafe and it popped up on the TV, just a part of your heart just broke, didn't it? And I'm talking to one of the parents of of a kid on my son's team, and she's just a wonderful woman, um, such a sincere person. She's from Philadelphia, so she tells it like it is. She says in colorful language, what do we do with this? Referring to Uvalde. What do we do? What do you make of this, Travis? How would you respond? How did you respond? I, I was just as stunned and shocked as anyone. I'm not saying my answer was the greatest. But what I said to her was, Heather, this proves that there is evil in the world. This proves there is evil in the world. You cannot question whether things are evil or not when things like this happen. And they happen again just this last week in Nashville, and we spent some time in prayer over that, and we will later on. It is very important, and it is not judgmental, to say, this is evil. This is wrong. 
Biblical faith gives you the ability, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that is clear and grounded in the truth to say, things are evil. This is an evil thing. This should not be. And that courage, that clarity can be a gift to other people. When I was talking with Heather, my friend from the baseball team, I just, I believe that in being able to declare that as evil, it gave her a little bit of freedom. It gave her a little bit of a sense of, good, the world shouldn't be like this. Because what's the enemy trying to do? He's trying to convince us that he isn't there, and he's trying to tell us that we are somehow above evil when in fact we are not. So that's the definition of evil. Now, kind of hold that in your mind for just a moment as we talk about today's passage, which we've not heard read, but depicts this moment. This is a painting called Palm Sunday Triumphal Entry by Matthew Sanderson, oil on canvas. I love this depiction for a couple of reasons. I love the framing. I love how it's like you're standing in an alleyway looking into this street where this person is riding along on a donkey. Like, I wonder if this isn't almost like a child's vantage point, right? Like, you're just a little bit lower than the adults in the picture. And you see this parade, and you see this person riding through. And what would you expect to see in a parade? You would expect to see a long train, and, you know, this is like when Prince Ali comes into Agrabah and Aladdin, right? Like, there's elephants dancing and the genie and all these things. You would expect this extravagance, right? But that's it. One guy. One guy. And, and people are throwing down cloaks and they're, they're raising palm branches. What is this? What does this look like to be in this moment? Well, here's how the scriptures describe it for us. When they'd come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Do you, does this sound familiar? This is the passage that Joe read for us from Zechariah 9. This is coming true. If anyone says anything to you, just say, the Lord needs them. By the way, don't use this like when you go to the grocery store. Don't grab stuff and say, the Lord needs them. Like, you will get in trouble. And he sent them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you. A king, but not like any other king. A king who is, what church? Humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them because it's really uncomfortable to sit on an uncovered animal. And he sat on them and a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, threw down their garments, and others cut branches from trees. How many of you got a branch next to you? Can you hold that up? They cut their branches from the trees and they spread them on the road and the crowds that went ahead of them and ahead of him and followed were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. A couple of observations about this. In the ancient Near East, when you were a king or a monarch or a queen, and your armies had conquered a city, the expectation was, kind of in a, a victory dance, you would ride into the city to show them who was in charge. And this would be a demonstration of all your power and your might and your resources, and your army would march in with you, and they'd have all their gear on, and they'd look super scary, and this was a way for the conquering party to make sure that those who were conquered knew their place. Except when you have a king 
like the king from Zechariah chapter 9, except when you have a servant king, when you have a king who heals and feeds the hungry and lifts up the broken and looks out for the marginalized. This is not a king with a parade of elephants, no. This is a king on a donkey. You ever try to get a donkey to go anywhere? They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. But this donkey got in line because of who he carried. Think about the crowd. That piece of artwork that I put up there, I put it up there because it shows the vantage point of the crowd. The crowd is saying things, saying things they have heard. Word has reached them that there is this prophet, there is this teacher, Jesus. This prophet, Jesus, is from Nazareth in Galilee. They have a recognition of him. And this is a huge city being filled up with people saying, this is the guy, this is the guy. But what are their expectations of him? If he's the guy, or if there's someone new that's hired at your company who is the person, the woman, the man to do X, Y, or Z, you have expectations of them, do you not? What does the crowd expect of Jesus? In the ancient Near East, in the time of this stage in the life of Israel, they had been oppressed, held underfoot, conquered by the most violent, bloodthirsty empire the world had seen, the Roman Empire. This was not a friendly relationship. They were at odds with the Romans. The Romans were pagan and violent and oppressive, and they had all kinds of terrible things that they did to keep their conquered subjects underfoot. And the people of Israel were these strange people who only worshipped one God and who did things like practice the Sabbath and who showed compassion and kindness for the poor. But one of the things that they hoped for, one of the stories that they were told, because every culture has stories that are told, is that one day a king would come and this king would put every oppressor down. The king from Zechariah 9, they might have interpreted that, many interpreted that almost as a nationalist parable. Like, our nation is going to be good again. The people of Israel are going to be in power again. We're going to throw off these Roman rulers and take charge again. And so their expectations looking at Jesus is almost like the giant battles in the Lord of the Rings movies. Like, there's going to be this huge conflict and he's going to win and he's going to vanquish all these terrible bad guys. Our plan is going to come to fruition. Glory to the nation of Israel. And the problem with that is Jesus. Because he will never serve one nation. Because he came for all people. And he will not throw off oppressors just because we think he should. He will throw off evil because evil is wrong. And he will do it in his way, in his timing. He rides in conquering, but not conquering like they expected a Roman governor to do or another warrior. No, he comes in not to conquer politics, but to conquer hearts and souls and to make things right and to announce the coming of the kingdom. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey would be like the new CEO of your company pulling up to corporate headquarters in a beat-up Toyota. There's nothing remarkable about it. People are cheering, Hosanna, save us. But they don't mean save us because we're wrong. They mean save us because we think this is wrong. We think this is evil. Jesus, make this right. Well, Jesus cares about making things right, but it's his right. It's his 
job to determine when evil is cast off, when things are finally made right. And during the week, this crowd of people that cheered for Jesus and said, yes, we're so glad you're here, Hosanna, something begins to shift for them. Because their expectations weren't met. Remember, they thought conquering hero, big parade. Wait, there's just a guy on a donkey with a bunch of coats thrown in front of him? What is this? What happens when our expectations aren't met? We get disappointed. We tell ourselves a story. We say, oh, well, maybe we didn't do it right. Maybe we need to go throw him a bigger parade. Oh, maybe he's not the right guy. Oh, maybe. Well, if he's not the right guy, what is he doing? You can see how point A to point B to point C starts to unfold. The Apostle Paul wrote about this later. Sin gives birth to death. And so when the expectations of this crowd are sort of shunted on Palm Sunday, guess what happens by the time it's Good Friday? The crowd of people who cheered Hosanna have a different word in their mouths. When it's time to determine who is set free. Remember this story from Good Friday? Jesus is brought before the Roman governor, and so is a career criminal, a bad, bad guy. And at this point, the crowd has turned. And they're not saying Hosanna anymore. In my devotional this morning, this, this word came up, and I wanted to share it with you guys. We can be sure that Jesus knew that the shouts of Hosanna on Palm Sunday would give way to the cry of crucify. Palm Sunday invites us to search deeply into our own souls for the answer to the question, what words would have been on my lips that day? How does this happen? How does a parade turn into a bloodthirsty mob? It happens because there's evil in you and in me and in our world. And we can't take a pill and get rid of it. We can't have a surgical procedure. It won't come up on an MRI. But it's real. And it's right there. And it's under the surface. And because of that, things like Uvalde happen. Things like addiction. And people's very lives and bodies being destroyed because of drugs and alcohol. It happens. Notice, I'm not saying... Addicts are evil people. I'm saying addiction is evil. It is proof of evil in our world. How would you define evil? How have you seen evil in your life? I believe that cancer is evil because cancer has killed people I love. We need to be clear-eyed about evil, church. And when your expectations are not met, for your work, for your marriage, for your parenting? How quickly does that evil start to creep in? And you go, I deserve, I deserve better than this. I don't deserve to be fighting with my spouse. I don't deserve to have my children speak disrespectfully to me. Be careful. Be careful. You're making room for something that does not need to have room in your life. Now, Jesus' remedy for this, his addressing of this, is to pray. Jesus says, what do we do about evil? We begin with prayer. And some might think, okay, really? Of all the things you could say, isn't that the most cliched, churchy thing to say? Just pray about it? Just pray about it? Thoughts and prayers? Are you serious? Yeah, I am. So is Jesus. He wasn't messing around. And part of it is, evil is so huge and so problematic and so multifaceted 
how do you start anywhere but prayer? How do you create a system to address something as problematic as just ongoing homelessness in our community? Well, millions of dollars are being spent all around the Seattle region to try to figure that out. And I'm all for us finding a solution to it, but I sure hope more people begin to think about that through the lens of prayer, by praying for people experiencing homelessness, by praying for our leaders, by praying for good use of resources from the nonprofit world, from governments, from whoever. I'll give you an example of this. A year ago, Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Remember this? This is still going on. We pray for it every week. At the time, my youngest daughter was attending a Catholic preschool, St. Brendan's Parish in Bothell. It was a great experience. They taught her the basics of the faith and some just wonderful truths of the scriptures that I just, I am so thankful for that parish. And their priest, Father Wickert, he was just so wonderful in doing chapel with them and kind of ministering to them. He was very much devoted to kind of his priestly duties, but he definitely showed up for them in chapel. And then one time, this is the only time I can remember this, Father Wickard emailed the whole school community. Like, we, they never really sent out tons and tons of emails about much of anything, but this one time, when Russia invaded Ukraine, Father Wickard emailed everyone, and he said, I know this is happening. I know many in our community have family who are connected to Ukraine, connected to Russia. This breaks God's heart, that there has been this terrible invasion, unjustified. And then he said this, our greatest weapon against evil is prayer. Our greatest weapon against evil is prayer. And I remember reading that and thinking like, okay, of course you're saying that. Like, I should probably say something like that. But I believe it. I believe he's right. The longer that terrible war drags on, the more I believe he's right. The longer our world suffers from addiction and people experiencing homelessness and violence, the more I'm convinced that the starting point, the through line in addressing any evil must be prayer. And the gospel tells us this. The gospel tells us there's evil in us and evil in the world, so don't be ignorant to it. But can you go and fix it by yourself? No. So ask God for help. Our hearts are fickle. We're going to be cheering Hosanna on Monday, and then by Friday we're going to be cheering crucify him. How do you fix that? How do you get into the architecture of your heart and make that right? The gospel says you can't. But if you ask Jesus to, he will. He will, over time, never in the way we expect, but he will bring that change. The gospel tells us Jesus sacrificed his life so that we could use prayer to fight evil, so that we could be free from evil owning our lives. And the gospel tells us that if we take prayer seriously, we will take seriously the call to address evil. So, Three very practical steps to consider. As we've been saying all throughout this sermon series, if you don't already have a practice of prayer, set a timer on your phone and try 10 minutes. You don't have to get all the words right. You don't have to say the right thing. Whatever evil you want to talk about or whether you want to talk about something else, try it for 10 minutes. If you have a good prayer practice, replace it with just 10 minutes of silence. Way harder to do than you think. But try it and see what the Lord does. That's step one. Step two, 24-7 prayer. We are having an opportunity to pray 
all throughout the Bethany family this coming week. There's still 32 slots available for prayer. I know a bunch of you have signed up. Thank you. All of those 32 slots are not at the most draconian hours of the day. They're actually at good times. So please take a look at that. There's a link in your bulletin. And the final encouragement is this. We all have something that we thought of when I said the word evil or someone or a situation in the world. So my encouragement is to actually pray about it. And we'll do that in just a moment. It can be as simple as, Lord, please end this evil that I see right in front of me. Lord, please bring an end to this addiction that my family member is facing. Lord, please bring an end to the evil of, of loneliness and pain. Take it a level down. Lord, end this evil that is inside of me that I can't control. End my selfishness, end my bitterness, end my anger, end my resentment, end my greed. Where do you want to start? And as our kids come in, I want to welcome you all, and we're going to turn our attention now to coming to the communion table. So kids...